Uh, we're actually going to switch things up a little bit, and we're going to do what is the fourth session in your books um, first, so today, and we'll come back to the third session tomorrow. Yeah. Um, So, just for the sake of clarity, today we're going to do Israel Goes to Church. There we go, that's what we call it. And we'll come back um, tomorrow to uh, the priests. The reason for that, basically tomorrow's session is a bit more like a a normal sermon. You'll probably picked up that in our first few sessions, these haven't been kind of normal sermons. I don't normally preach like this on a Sunday. Um, we've been going a bit sort of deeper and slower and doing more digging. Um, tomorrow is going to be a bit more kind of pastoral. Um, and today's going to be a bit more controversial. So uh, I thought we'd do this one um, first. And that gives plenty of time for uh, questions, discussion, uh, and so later on. So come with me to Leviticus chapter 9. Just so we can clear where we've got up to in the book. So 1 through 7 were the offerings. We're done with those now. Okay, so you now know all there is to know about the offerings in Leviticus. Indeed, the whole Old Testament. Uh, 1 through 7 are offerings. Chapters 8 and 9, sorry, well, particularly chapter 8, we'll come back to you tomorrow, um, is about the, the priests. And in chapter 9 and 10, we get the first two worship services um, of Israel's history. So for the first time, the whole tabernacle system goes into action. Okay, so that's what we're about to read. Uh, so let's go from, from chapter 9. Uh, and verse 1. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron. Aaron's Moses' brother, and he's going to be the high priest. He's just been made the high priest. Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And say to the people of Israel, take a male goat for a sin offering, and a calf and a lamb, both a year old without blemish, for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for peace offerings, to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord will appear to you. And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting, and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, this is the thing the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Then Moses said to Aaron, draw near, is that word again, the near drawing, draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people and bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord commanded. Now from verses 8 through 21, we then get a description of Aaron doing everything Moses just told him to do. Uh, we're going to walk through it a little bit later, so I'm going to skip down to verse 22. So all the offerings will be made. Verse 22. Then Aaron lifted up his hands towards the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offerings. And the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Now, Adab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Um, Cast your minds forward to next Sunday. Imagine yourself sat in church. Uh, Before the service, you've managed to get there early, like all students always do, in my experience. Uh, You're there, you're in your seat, uh, and you've got a few moments. And you ask yourself, why am I here? Why am I here? Just, Just think yourself. What would you answer? Okay, why are you there? In other words, why do we go to church? Why do we gather Sunday by Sunday? Um, there are various right answers. Okay, there's more than one reason, obviously. 
But there is, I think, one overarching one, one kind of supreme one that governs all the minor ones. And the supreme answer is you are there to worship. You're there to worship. And Leviticus 9 and 10 speak to worship. Now, as we'll see, there are obviously all sorts of adjustments we're going to make. We're not in the days of the tabernacle. Uh, We're not offering goats and, you know, don't bring Paul a lamb next Sunday. And, you know, I hear we've got to kill this for our sin and all the rest of it. There are era moves. But the overarching principle is the same. God's people gather to worship. Fascinatingly, um, it seems we're even wired for it. As in literally wired for it. Um, so I, re- I read a thing in a journal recently that the um, uh, scientists and medics among you, forgive me for the inaccurate language, but um, you know the way that you, now we can kind of look at brains and work out which bits are kind of firing when different things happen, you know, when you're bored or when you're happy or when you're... Um, the same bits of your brain fire uh, when you... Uh, kind of, someone goes to a worship service uh, as when an Apple fanatic gets the latest bit of Apple tech. Very interesting, isn't it? Yeah, they, they sort of hooked all sorts of people up in different situations. Why? It's like worship, isn't it? It's the excitement, it's the joy. It's, this is the thing that's going to give me uh, wonder. This is the thing that's going to give me awe. Even our brains tell us we're built for wonder and awe. And because 9 and 10 um, speak to that worship, we're going to think first about the promise of worship. Look at the big picture before we get into the details. Remember the whole story of Leviticus, we keep coming back to Exodus 40, God builds his house, but no one can get in. And so Leviticus begins, and he calls. God calling Adam back into the garden. God calling Moses back into the house. And chapter 9 is the first successful time that happens. Notice that um, in verse 23, at the end of this whole ceremony... Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting and they came out again. They finally, they've been able to go in and it's safe. Whereas at the end of Exodus, Moses was sort of driven out by the glory and the, the fire. Um, more than that, the people in verse 24. Uh, the fire comes out, God's fire comes out, consumes the offering, so accepts the offerings. And when the people saw it, they shout and fell on the faces. That's not terror or horror. Um, that is sort of joyful awe and wonder, worship in action, falling down, bowing down before God. Now, how is this possible? How have we moved from a situation where the, the, the fire drives everybody away to a, a situation where now it's safe? Well, fundamentally, it's the offerings, isn't it? Verse 24, fire came out before the Lord and consumed the burnt offerings and the pieces of fat. That was what was missing at the end of Exodus 40. It was just God coming down, and with no offering, no sacrifice, no substitute, that drove Moses, sinner as he is, away. But now the fire consumes the offerings, and it's safe. Safe for those who've trusted in God's provision of a sacrifice to draw near. At the moment, we're still at the kind of 40,000 feet view, okay? I know we haven't picked into the details of the chapter. But I guess you can see where this all points to. It's all pointing to that the one true offering given once and for all for your sins of the Lord Jesus. Because the fire has consumed him, he went through the the fires of judgment. Because the sword has fallen on him at the cross, God's sword of judgment. Well, therefore, it's now safe for us to approach God. And only safe if we go through the Lord Jesus. There is no other way to God, is there? There was no way other than through the fire and the sword. Remember the cherubim that guarded Eden. Uh, that then kind of transforms, it were, into the fire uh, that burns on the altar and the sword that slaughters the animal. Uh, they are symbolic of or enactments of the judgment of God at sin. And there is no way to God around them. I mean, the tabernacle only had one way in. There's no way kind of hopping over the wall and sneaking into the tabernacle. There's no way to God. There's no way to heaven other than through the offering, other than through the Lord Jesus. But for our sake this morning, my question is why? Why the sacrifices? Why the offerings? They weren't an end in themselves, were they? The idea wasn't you bring your goat, your offerings, and um, you, you sacrifice them, and your sin is paid for, and then you leg it. 
No, they were to enable you and God to be united, particularly in worship. The whole point of this offering system is so that Israel can draw near to God. Time and again we get them drawing near. It's there in verse 8. We've had it all the way through um, the book of Leviticus. Even that the offering word is, is, is the drawing near word. It's all about approaching God. In other words, the purpose of the offerings is so that you can draw near to God in worship. So let's look at a little bit at Aaron. Um, the bit we skipped over, which we're going to come back to tomorrow in the, the chapter 4, all the way through chapter 8. He goes through this kind of ordination process. Okay, we'll, we'll come back to it tomorrow. Um, it's him being consecrated, being made holy to be a high priest. And it's fascinating. I wonder what you make of this. Fascinating little details. Um, at the end of that, after they've gone through all these kind of sacrifices and pouring oil on him, all sorts of things, he goes into the tabernacle. Okay, he goes into the tent. So out of sight of Israel, he disappears. And he disappears, if you look at the top of, uh, end of chapter 8, chapter 8, verse 35. At the entrance of the tent of meetings, that's the tabernacle proper, not the courtyard, in there. He'll remain day and night for seven days. So, so he's in there, um, out of sight of sort of ordinary Israel. And then as chapter 9 begins, on the eighth day, Moses called Aaron. Okay. And his, his sons are also becoming priests. Aaron reappears on the eighth day. And what happens? He leads the first ever worship service. What's the eighth day of the week? I know there's only seven days. <laughs> we only have seven days in England too. The eighth day of the week is the first day of the week again, isn't it? Around again. Or it's the next day. The eighth day of the week is the first day of the new week. And for Jews, what would that be? Well, you probably know the Jewish week starts... Uh, on a Saturday, so the first day of the week is Sunday. In other words, Aaron disappears, the great high priest disappears, reappears on Sunday morning, and goes straight to lead God's people in worship. There is a strong picture there, isn't there? The Lord Jesus comes as the great high priest, he atones for our sin at the cross. And on the first day, on the Sunday morning, having gone out of sight, he reappears, rises from the dead, comes out. Why? To lead his people in worship. That is the point of the gospel. The purpose of the gospel is not just to get you forgiven so you don't go to hell, although thank God it is that. But it is also in order that the Lord Jesus might lead you in worship before God. Um, think of Psalm 22. In fact, why don't, why don't turn to Psalm 22? Uh, a little bit further on in the Bible. Psalm's roughly in the middle. Psalm 22, which is famous really for its first line. If you don't know anything about the Psalms, and you don't know anything about Psalm 22, you may well recognize the first line. Psalm 22 in verse 1. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are the words that Jesus quotes on the cross, aren't they? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He quotes the beginning of the psalm. And if we were to walk through the psalm, we'd see that the first half is this incredible um, prophetic description of the cross. Um, so have a look at verse 7. I'll just pick a few random examples. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. He delights in the Lord. Jesus on the cross mocked. They said exactly that. You know, if you're the Christ, come down, save yourself. You trust God, surely you'll be okay. Uh, other verses throughout the psalm are applied to Jesus. Verse 14, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart's like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot's herd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Uh, verse 16, very striking. Dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones, no bones broken. Uh, they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. It's an incredible prophecy in this crucifixion, isn't it? Given this is written a thousand or so years before Jesus. 
And so the first 21 verses are all about that death of Christ in our place. Christ being the offerer uh, and the offering. But just look what happens at verse 22. There's a turning point that the whole psalm in a way has been like a, it's been like a U. And, and the first 21 verses have been the downward bend of the U. But in verse 21 we reach the bottom. The Christ save me from the mouth of a lion. And then this confident um, proclamation, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And so from verse 22, the bend goes upwards again. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. The, the crucified one proclaims what will happen after the crucifixion. I will tell your name. So he's speaking to God the Father. I will tell your name to my brothers in the middle of the congregation. Yes, I'm going through this horrible experience now, but it will lead to me leading my brothers and sisters in worship. And that's why he then calls to the congregation. Verse 23, he's speaking to Israel, to God's people. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe. Verse 25, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. Verse 29, all the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. On and on we might go. The cross is not an end in itself. It leads to worship. Cross, resurrection, and then Christ amongst his people leading them in worship. And Hebrews 2 picks up exactly those verses from Psalm 22, uh, verse 22 in particular, and applies it to the Lord Jesus. to be clear Jesus is the great high priest he came to atone for our sins to pay every debt but he came to do that in order that afterwards he would lead this great throng in worship of God and this is where the, the, the whole universe is heading this was the whole point of the story it wasn't simply escaping hell it wasn't simply being forgiven it was all those wonderful things to an even greater end, the worship of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Entering into God's presence safely, falling down before him, gathered with brothers and sisters, led by the Lord Jesus. That is the goal. If you, if you know the Psalms, you'll know that the Psalms are full of this longing. One thing I'll ask of you, and I can gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Better a day in the tent, the tabernacle than a thousand elsewhere. My impression is, hey, I'm, a, I'm an Englishman, what do I know? But my impression is, in the evangelical church, at least south of the border, where we're all half pagan, um, <laughs> my impression is we've got an incredibly low view of worship compared to almost any other generation before us. And by worship, I don't hear mean all of life worship. Yesterday, at one point, yesterday, um, we looked at Romans 12. Okay, offer your lives as a, a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual act of worship. Sometimes in the New Testament, the kind of broad language of worship gets applied to the whole of your life. And of course, the whole of your life does matter. All of our life is service to God. That's not a New Testament reality. That's Old Testament too. Okay, if you said to an Old Testament um, uh, Israelite believer, um, hey, in, in the New Covenant, there's a real change. We've moved from that kind of thing you guys did, worshiping at the tabernacle. Now for us, all of our life is worship. The Israelite would be, like, would be saying, that's not changed. What do you think we've been doing? In, in Exodus 19, the whole of Israel is described as a nation of priests. The language of worship or serving God, the, the words are interchangeable, is used of all of Israel's life too. So the idea that all of life is worship is totally true, but it's as true in Exodus as it is in Romans. But that's not what we're talking about here. Here we're talking about that narrower sense, that more focused sense of worship, if you like, when the, 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 the people of God gather together at the place he appoints, at the time he appoints, led by the Lord Jesus and worship. Of course, in our era, that's not a tabernacle. We don't go to a special, there's no one holy place. We are gathered together. Well, we're gathered together ultimately in the heavenly realms. Spiritually, we, 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 we dwell in heaven already. But that is manifested on earth as we gather together at, in the body of the church, week by week, the gathering of the church. 
Sunday by Sunday, we gather together. And as we do so, we're not being led simply by whichever elder is leading the service that week. We're being led ultimately by the Lord Jesus. He is amongst us. He is calling us to worship. He is leading us in worship. And to worship is to, to engage with God. That the whole of that Sunday service, as we tend to call them, is worship. It's not just singing. The whole meeting is, is, is designed for you to draw near to God and meet with him. So you'll meet him through his word as it's read and taught. You'll meet him as you come to him in prayer. All of that is worship. You worship not just by singing, but you worship as you, you listen attentively to the sermon. You worship as you engage in the prayers. You worship as you sing, very obviously. You worship as perhaps you, you give of your money, if there's an offering. Uh, you worship as you take the Lord's Supper and thank him for all he's done and feed on him. All, all the service is worship, not just one aspect. To worship is to engage with God. And the key is it is focused on him and led by Jesus. It is not just a horizontal activity where we kind of encourage one another or train one another. Uh, neither is it neither is just what, what, what one writer calls edutainment. Edutainment, and that's a made-up word, obviously. Um, a, few, few, uh, a few years ago I was doing some stuff in worship and uh, tried to read a few books. And I came across this American professor who, who took a sabbatical and went travelling around all sorts of churches in the US um, I'm a, I realise that there's a lot of Americans here, um, so I'll tread very carefully. But the US church, in part, is totally nuts, okay, compared to England. Okay, you have got a breadth and an extremity that, frankly, you just don't see over here, just because it's so much larger. Uh, and so he travelled. He was a sort of relatively conservative guy, not, not super conservative, but relatively conservative. He travelled around all sorts of different churches. But this is my chance. Uh, and as he reflected on it afterwards, and he wrote it up, he... He said that his overall impression was actually that the churches fell into two categories. Some were entertainment. Others were essentially educational experiences. Now already, you, you know, I'm not going to name names, but already you might be able to think of the kinds of churches he might be talking about. And there are some churches where it's all smoke and mirrors and... Crash bang wall up, it's super exciting. Um, everything is designed to keep you on the edge of your seat. It's edgy, what's going to happen next? It's entertaining you. There are other churches where it's education is the thing. It's all about learning, 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 learning. But the fascinating insight, at least for me, from, from this guy, was his realization that the two were not actually that different. Hence his word, edutainment. What he realised was that, that in the churches that were high on education, so typically would have lots of Bible teaching and all that sort of thing, high on education, very often what was going on was exactly the same as in the entertainment churches. It's just that the kind of clientele that were coming along were the kind of people who were, were not quite as expressive. They didn't want to bounce around and put hands in the air and jive and all the rest of it. They were intellectual types. And so what entertained them was being educated. What they really liked was learning um, how Ephesians 1 fitted together, what the big theme of the book of Galatians was. Learning more about predestination so they could defend it against their liberal mates. It was education, but basically just to scratch a sort of intellectual itch. Hence his word, edutainment. Now, don't mishear me, it is good to learn when you go to church. <laughs> Um, we're mental and we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. But that is not the goal when you go to church. And church is not a seminar or a lecture. It's meant to be an entirely different thing to what happens when you turn up um, to your university class on Shakespeare's sonnets or whatever the next week. The goal is worship. To meet with the living God. to be convicted of our sins, to be comforted by the gospel, but to meet with him, not simply to be educated. And it's that corporate worship that is the heart of the spirituality of God's people throughout the Bible. Again, this is a quite modern shift. Notice everything in Leviticus is corporate. They come together. You didn't do your own little sacrifice at home. You came together, gathered, the congregation gathered 
And spirituality throughout the Bible is primarily corporate. Most of the ways God works are through corporate means. We're such an individualistic society that, that we prioritise you know, my own personal quiet time with God. That's the main thing, that I read the Bible and pray on my own. That's good to read the Bible and pray on your own. But central is the corporate gathering where God speaks to you through the preached words, through those men he's appointed to be elders, preachers, teachers, pastors. Uh, in the context of meeting with the Lord Jesus there, gather with my brothers and sisters. Corporate worship is at the heart of Christian spirituality. Uh, the promise of worship, therefore, pictured in Leviticus, is that one day the Lord Jesus would be the true offering. He rises again in order to lead his people in this gathered corporate worship. In order, in other words, that we might week by week, as a foretaste of the glory to come, meet with our God. The promise of worship. If you've uh, left Leviticus, come back to Leviticus 9. And let's look secondly at the pattern of worship. The pattern of worship. Now this is where the, the last couple of days hopefully is going to kind of kick into action and uh, you'll start seeing, making some connections. Um, when, when I, if, I, if you just sat down and read Leviticus 9, certainly before this week, week I suspect that for most of us it would be, be, be one of those chapters that you've just got to get through. Okay, and like the burnt offering, there's a sin offering, there's a peace offering, there's a total jumble of stuff and very hard to pull apart in your brain what's going on. But actually it's beautifully ordered and makes a load of sense once you've got the offerings in place. So let's walk through this first ever successful worship service and just see the pattern of it and then we'll draw some lessons. Uh, it begins with a call from God's spokesman, from the kind of living, walking, talking word of God, which is Moses. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. So the word of God calls them together and tells them how it's going to look. That's verses 1 through 7. This is is how things are going to work. And from verse 8 onwards, the action takes place. And the the way the chapter works is verses 8 through 14, they go through one cycle of offerings for the priests. So the priests offering for themselves. And then in 15 through 21, they go through the same cycle of offerings, but for the people. Okay, so it's two loops around the same set of offerings. And the order is really significant. Um, we'll use the people's offerings uh, from verse 15 onwards, but we could have cycled around it. The priest's ones are exactly the same. Look at verse 15. Look at the order uh, um, these offerings come in. First of all is... Verse 15, then he presented the people's offering and took the goat of the sin offering that was for the people. The sin offering is what we call the purification, the fourth of all offerings, the D for detergent, the cleansing from sin one. So we start with the sin offering, the cleansing offering. Then we move on, verse 16, he presented the burnt offering. That's what we call the ascension offering, the going up offering, the transformed into holy smoke, ascending into God's presence. Atonement, ascension, sin paid for, cleansed, then transformed and entering up into God's presence. What's going to go next? You might even be able to guess. What happens when you go into God's presence symbolically? You go up from the bronze altar to the gold altar into the, the, holy, uh, the holy place. We don't go empty handed, do you? Bring a gift. Leviticus 2. And that's what we see next in our offerings too. After the burnt offering of verse 16, verse 17, he presented the grain offering. Remember the one that's not atoning? It's the one that is just a gift fit for the king. I took a handful of it and burnt it on the altar besides the burnt offering of the morning. Atoned for sin. Sin offering cleansed. Ascended. The entrance offering. Burnt offering. The ascension offering. We've come with our hands full to give a gift to God, to bring a gift offering. What's the, the final offering that needs to happen? It's the peace offering, isn't it? And lo and behold, what do we see? Verse 18, then he killed the ox and the ram, the sacrifice of peace offerings for the people. That's the one that they eat. Remember, we eat together. Not a Tony for sin anymore. This is the communion offering, the come and eat in peace offering. 
And then after all these offerings are done, verse 22, Aaron lifts his hands towards the people and blesses them. A benediction. When people bless people in the Bible, um, they either lay their hands on them, if it's just one or two people, they think of the patriarchs, you know, Jacob blessing his sons, he puts his hands on them. Um, or they lift their hands. Um, if you can't, you can't sort of run around the room, Aaron can't run around like, tapping every Israelite on the hair. Um, so you just lift your hands. It's a, it's a symbol of laying on of hands and announcing God's blessing. God is happy with you. This is, this is not a prayer. This is announcements of God's grace towards you. You probably have it at the end of the service, I, I would guess. Uh, most kind of reformed churches do, where the, the minister will end the service by lifting his hands and pronouncing a benediction. He's not praying to end the service. Prayer is when you ask God for something. Please, God, can we? It's a kind of upwards address. Benedictions are downwards. The Lord blesses you and keeps you. The Lord makes his face to shine upon you. It's an announcement, not a prayer. And I guess most kind of reformed churches will end that way. Well, not just reformed churches. Most, most churches will end that way. Anyway, do, do you see the pattern of the offerings? Cleanse, ascend into God's presence, ascend with a gift, a big gift, and then there's a peace where we eat together. That is basically the pattern of the gospel. The pattern of your salvation begins with atonement. Christ dies, cleanses you from your sin. You're then transformed over the course of your life, and with that transformation, that transformed life, you. Are, are living out um, uh, in service of God that kind of Romans 12 spiritual act of worship that we saw the grain offering pointed to. And it's all headed towards the great wedding supper of the Lamb when we will sit down and eat with God. The offerings are pictures of the gospel, of the salvation that is to come. They're also looking back to the Exodus, incidentally. And the, the rescue story of the, of the Israelites began with the, the, the sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice, the Passover, the lamb dying. They came up out of Egypt. It's always talked about coming up out of Egypt, ascending out of Egypt towards the promised land. They bring their gifts. Remember, they, they take all the stuff to Mount Sinai. They take all the gold from the Egyptians. They bring, bring those gifts to the Lord God. And then at Mount Sinai, when they've kind of gone up, finally, out of, e- out of Egypt, they've gone up and reached the, the mountain of God. At least the elders and Moses sit down and eat with him on the mountain. So it's a court, it's a, the, the sacrifices, the way they're performed, is always in this order. It's a pattern of the gospel, it's the pattern of the exodus. And it is, incidentally, also the pattern or the order of the service in almost every church in the history of the world. <laughs> Uh, one of the fascinating things, when you look at the order that people do things on Sunday, one of the fascinating things is that over time, almost irrespective of the denomination or, or whatever, or the language or the nation, almost always services end up in this kind of pattern. As a scholar called Godfrey Dix, who sort of looked at the orders of service of just, just way more churches than you've even begun to hear of. Not all of them evangelical, but loads of them evangelical, but not all of them. And the fascinating thing he saw is that over time, all the services kind of ended up basically following the same pattern. Even those churches that began trying to be really funky and different, just as they kind of matured and grew up, they ended up the same. And so you might recognise the pattern. It's not, um, uh, it's not complex. It is basically a gospel pattern. Services start with God calling us. That makes sense. Jesus is leading us. They start with God's word, perhaps a Bible verse or an invitation to worship, a call to worship. As we come into God's presence, we realise that we're sinners. So the first thing we need to do is confess our sin. The, the, the atoning offering. We confess our sin. And we're comforted by the good news of the gospel. Call, confession, comfort of the gospel. And then we hit all the kind of stuff in the middle. Um, the prayers, the preaching, the reading of God's word. They're all there to transform us. So they might be ascension offering. They're transforming us, making us more holy. And if you're going to have the Lord's Supper, it's always at the end, isn't it? Why? Just this sort of gospel logic that's got into our blood, even though we didn't realise it. And so towards the end, we'd have the eating in peace with God meal. And then finally, the blessing, dismissal, uh, with God's blessing ringing in your ear. Now, I'm not saying that is a binding pattern on every church, and it must be done that way, and Leviticus says it, so you've got to do it like that. I'm not saying that at all. But it is interesting 
that right throughout Scripture, when God's people have gathered together, the, the gospel pattern, the salvation pattern, has been there in the offerings. It was there in the Exodus. It's, the reality is the gospel and the transformation of you and your lives. And that has worked its way into how many, most, the vast majority of um, services end up being run. Structures tell stories. So that pattern of worship is, is pointing forward to the great work of Christ. And as we gather on Sundays, what are we doing if not rejoicing in the great work of Christ? Reminded of the gospel week by week. The gospel is meant to be at the centre of our worship. So again, we're not looking for novelty as we come Sunday by Sunday. But we're looking to be renewed in the gospel. You never outgrow the gospel. It's so easy to think that you know, the gospel is what gets me saved. And then I need to go on to the deep stuff. But everything, even the deep stuff, the really hard stuff, Romans 11 or, I don't know, Ephesians 1, or whatever, whatever your kind of hard passage is, is all there to deepen you in the gospel. And so as you come Sunday by Sunday, come to church to meet with your, with your God, meet with the living God, expecting to meet with God. But do so wanting to be deepened and renewed in the great truths of the gospel. God's holiness, your sin, his mercy and your safety in him. And the fact that you are at peace with him again. And it's from that, that soil, that rich soil, as you water that soil more and more, that all the other fruit grows. The passion of worship. Finally, the peril of worship. Leviticus 10. Uh, this is a real shocker, isn't it? Leviticus 9, it's all gone so well, it's ended in joy. And then Leviticus 10, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron. So these guys are ordained as priests. Okay? These are big deals. Moses and Aaron are the top dogs. But Nadab and Abihu are right up there. Okay? One of them, all things being equal, would become the next high priest when Aaron died. Um, the, the head of the church. And yet, something goes horribly wrong. They each take their censer there in verse 1, that kind of um, thing full of um, incense burning and they put fire in it and they laid it on uh, unauthorised fire before the Lord and fire comes out verse 2 from the Lord and consumes them what are they doing wrong what have they done wrong it's hard to know exactly because we're not told exactly uh, some people th- think they tried to go in to the most holy place where they weren't allowed to go uh, and actually if you read through Leviticus, the, um, the Day of Atonement instructions are given on this same day that Nadab and Abihu die. And the Day of Atonement is all about cleansing the most holy place. So that, that may be right. But we're not really told. What we're told is that whatever they did do, it was unauthorised. It's there twice in, in verse uh, 1, isn't it? They, laid, uh, they offered unauthorised fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. They weren't worshipping the wrong God. They were worshipping the right God. But in the wrong way. An unauthorised way. Not according to his word. They were trying to draw near with their own ideas. In other words, they're refusing to worship God according to his word. According to the way God had commanded them to worship, to draw near. Worship is just drawing near God and engaging with him. Now, if you look at, at chapters 89, the successful worship service, you'll see that, that time and time again, it is, everything is done exactly according to the word of, of uh, God. Have a look at chapter 8. And if your Bible split into paragraphs, this is going to make it much easier. Almost every paragraph ends the same way. So there are instructions given, and then everything is done as the Lord commanded Moses so verse 9 he set the turban on his head and on the turban in the front he set the gold plate the holy crown as the Lord commanded Moses verse 13 more instructions and it's done as the Lord commanded Moses verse 17 more instructions it's done as the Lord commanded Moses verse 21 more instructions about offerings it's done as the Lord commanded Moses verse 29 more instructions it's done as the Lord commanded Moses Moses. On and on uh, we could go. God says do this when you draw near and everything's done as the Lord commanded Moses. And the whole thing as we saw earlier ends in joy and rapture and God drawing near in safety. 
Here, it is not done as the Lord commanded, and it ends, well, it ends in death. Fire comes out from the Lord and doesn't consume the offering, it consumes them. They die before the Lord. Nadab and Abihu have decided to innovate. Uh, they've been to a creative worship seminar or something, and it's backfired massively. Chapter 9, the successful worship service, ends in joyful praise. They shout out and fall on their faces, verse 24. Chapter 10's worship service ends in, verse 3, silence. Aaron held his peace. There's silence, deathly silence. His sons have been killed. Now what's that meant to say to us today? What does that say to us today? It tells us this, I think. You only approach God according to his word. You must only approach God according to his word. Now, I'll give you two sort of ways of applying that. And um, they sit in some slightly different categories. The first one is Let me just give you what it is and then we'll talk about it afterwards. The first one is this. That is certainly true in the gospel. You must only approach God according to his word of the gospel. There is no way to safely approach God other than in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, other than through the atoning death of Christ. We live in an age that wants to say there's many paths up the mountain. Everyone's searching after the truth in their own way. Christianity is one right answer, but so are many others. No, there is no way to approach God but through the Lord Jesus. To do so will be deadly. And so I think it's totally valid to use this passage about Nadab and Abihu to remind us that only in Christ can we safely approach God. That is true, isn't it? And vitally important. But I want to suggest to you that there's something else we're meant to do with with, uh, Leviticus 10. And that is apply it not just to the gospel, but to worship, but to drawing near in in our gathered corporate worship. After all, Nadab and Abihu don't think they're approaching God to get saved. One of the mistakes we can make about the tabernacle system, because we know that the offerings point forward to Jesus, is think that it's all about how to get saved and forgiven. But that that can't be the case, can it? These offerings aren't, um, aren't the Israelites getting saved every time they make them and then unsaved when they sin. So it's not the case that, you know, Bob the Israelite, um, he loses his temper with the kids, so he gets a goat, he goes to the tabernacle, he sacrifices it, his sin is atoned for, um, so he's all right with God, he's saved, he's going to heaven, he walks out of the temple, he sees his neighbour who he really hates, he starts a fight, he's like, oh, nuts, grabs the next goat, goes back in, um, sacrifices it, saves, I'm okay, I'm going to heaven, outside, sees his neighbour's wife, and he kind of fancies, lusts, oh, nuts, next goat, you know, that's not how the system works. It is not a system of salvation and not salvation. Salvation, not salvation. It is all about the ongoing relationship. In fact, Hebrews calls those who bring offerings worshippers. In other words, the Israelites are not non-Christians trying to get saved when they come to the tabernacle to offer their, their offerings. They are God's people. They've already been saved. That's what the Exodus is all about. Now, some of them believe, some of them don't, some of them fall away, sure. But they're already God's people. This is about the ongoing relationship. This is about worship, in other words. Nadab and Abihu are not trying to become Christians or become Jews or become real Israelites by offering their own made-up offerings. They're being created in worship, not salvation. And so that has led to a second kind of realm of application from Leviticus 10. Now, in, in, this, in this room, I think I'm fairly safe. The reason I was being a bit cautious beforehand is it is fair to say that Christians in general have disagreed about this. But, uh, you guys are the free church, so we're safe. Um, this is the position. The position I'm going to lay out to you is the, 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 the free church position. Okay? It's, a, it's not just the free church, it's the kind of reformed position. So any Presbyterian church in the world, um, at least the elders have signed up to say, yeah, this is what we think about worship. Same with the stuff earlier I was talking about, by the way. The, 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 if you're going to be an elder, a, a church leader in the, the free church or the IPC or the Presbyterian Church of America or whatever, this is the doctrine of worship. You sign up saying, yeah, this is what I believe. Okay, so I'm... I'm safe here in a way, I might not be safe elsewhere. Think about what's going on. Nadab and Abihu are not approaching God according to his word, and it has disastrous consequences. 
principle we draw from it, which is seen not just here, but in the second command, but at other places in the Old Testament uh, as well, is that God cares not just that he's worshipped, but how he's worshipped. Not just that he's worshipped, but how he's worshipped. And it's his word that shapes and tells us how we should worship. And, And that's why... I guess maybe this is helpful just for understanding what goes on when you guys gather together on a, on a Sunday as a kind of reformed congregation, Presbyterian congregation. That is why the only things that will go on in your service are things that are directly commanded by the Word of God in its new covenant era. So obviously no one's putting Leviticus in place because we don't live in your covenant. But the New Testament has things to say about what we do when we gather too. And people in that reformed Presbyterian tradition traditional some others too would agree on this but given it I'm talking to a Presbyterian church I'll stick with the Presbyterian uh, justification people would people in that that tradition would look to the New Testament and say look there are various things God commands us to do when we gather together and we should do those and we should do nothing else we can't innovate we can't bring new stuff in and it already moves around the word of God the word of God is how he meets with his people now isn't it there's no burning fire in a temple somewhere it's the word of God I've got time to run through it all now but, but, but to summarise I suppose you could say that when we meet together the way God meets with his people is through his word and so what does the New Testament tell us to do we read the word we preach the word and therefore listen to it we sing the word we pray and we see the word in the kind of sacraments the Lord's Supper and baptism And really that's all we're meant to do when we gather together. There's loads of other cool stuff you can do personally when you're doing that Romans 12 all of life worship. But we're not meant to import that into the service. That's why in kind of this this reformed tradition you might be someone who's a brilliant painter. Can you paint the glory of God? Of course you can. Is that therefore an act of worship and service? Of course it is. But it's not going to be part of the the worship service on a Sunday. Because God has not commanded us to do that when we draw near and gather. You can think of all sorts of other things. I don't want to stir the pot too much. But there's all sorts of things some churches will do when they gather together that have frankly no warrant in the word of God. The ministers thought, I need to be entertaining. I need to interest. I need to do something. And so we import elements that God has never asked to be as part of his worship. The whole point is that God tells us not just who to worship, but how to worship. And it's his word that regulates, shapes what the worship service should look like. And so we end where we, where we began in some ways, which is with that role of corporate worship. You are saved to gather together to worship. This is the, fu- the, the centre of your discipleship now, and it is your future. It's where everything is going. Revelation 21, 22, we read of the great gathering of God's people before the throne of the Lamb. And every time we get a glimpse into heaven, what is going on? Worship. Not all of life worship. I remember giving talks, um, youth group talks and summer camp talks, all sorts of things. Right? Don't worry. Don't worry. Uh, heaven's not going to just be long, one long, boring worship service. It's not going to be one long, boring church service. Don't worry, we'll be skiing and playing sport and music and painting. And, uh, now, that may be true. Maybe we'll be skiing. I don't know. Maybe we'll be playing cricket. I don't know. But my language, don't worry, it's not going to be one long worship service. That's the giveaway to the mess of my heart. As if that would be a disaster. That shows how little I desire God, how little I esteem worship. How much I was portraying gathering to worship and meet with God as the kind of thing you have to do for an hour or two on a Sunday, but the real action's elsewhere. Essentially a selfish view of heaven. Kind of Aladdin's genie, I get to do whatever I want. And there might be a little worship on the way, but don't worry, it won't last too long. If your heart resonates with that, then it's revealing how little your heart desires God. Now, thank God you're saved not by your desire for God, but by God's desire for you. This is exactly the kind of sins that he came to rescue you from. It's not just the sins that we do, but the problems of our hearts. We're meant to be people who long to worship, to come into his presence safely. There is one day in your courts and a thousand elsewhere. 
most of us will look inside and see nothing like that kind of desire and so again you look out from your heart from your desires that messy flickering wavering and you look out again to the altar to the place of sacrifice where Christ has died to pay for even those sins and as you put all your weight on him for salvation as you see that even though you don't love him he loved you then slowly your heart will be warmed and the desire to worship God willing will grow it's something to pursue Lord, make me someone who desires one day in your courts more than a thousand elsewhere. And one of the chief ways God will do that is through the gathered worship week by week until eventually he takes you home to the great worship service in heaven. Let me pray. Our Father, we do read these psalms and confess that our desires are so weak that our taste for you, our, our desire for you is nowhere near what it should be we're so pleased with earthly things and we, we we fail to see through them up back up the sunbeams to your glory your wonder your love your grace and so we thank you that we're saved not by our desires but by yours by christ's righteousness in our place his sacrifice in our place and we pray that you would grow in us a longing sunday by sunday to meet with you to hear what you have to say to us to hear again what you have done for us and to pray to you to sing to you in worship to bow down before you and to receive your blessing to feed on the gifts you've given us so make us increasingly true worshipers we pray and keep us safe until that last day when you gather us around the throne bless us we ask in jesus name and jesus name alone amen